Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome our guest, Dr. Dante Vaughn, author of From Culture to Culture. Uh, Dante, welcome. I appreciate you having me, Mark. Thank you. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And if you could, uh, let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Sure. So I currently serve as the uh, founder and president of a a boutique consulting firm called Litecoin Advisors. And like you, Mark, we work with business leaders, oftentimes family owned and operated um, across the country and um, Canada. And we're supporting them in optimizing how they lead, right? How they lead their organizations, how they engage, how they interact, how they make decisions that impact the business performance. And then the other side of the coin and much of the work that we do is around how they show up as leaders in their lives personally as well, right? How do they advance their mindset? How do they advance their skills and competencies? And we work in various life cycles from organizations who are in startup all the way to organizations who are pre or post-merger acquisition and organizations trying to integrate their their workplace culture is just a, 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 a unique or diverse um, you know portfolio of clients that we serve and, and their needs all centered around leadership. Uh, my background's in organizational leadership and, and development, uh, IO psychology, um, and I teach academically at uh, Southern New Hampshire University and um, American Intercontinental university. Um, and I mean, much of the work that I do is is born out of what I believe to be essential in our existence, right? And that is how we show up, how we serve others. And leadership is is the, is, is the catalyst to that. Um, so it's really inspired me and in, in much of the work and both as a scholar, a practitioner and, and a leader myself. Uh, why did you write this book? You know, my business partner and I um, both had independent but similar journeys professionally as we worked with organizations in the U.S. and globally. And we found this commonality in organizations seeking to improve systems, improve processes. Both of us were started in operations leadership and, and consulting. We Six Sigma, Black Belt, all the lean management principles and methodologies. But what was always missing and what we found ourselves putting more emphasis around is how do you impact leadership behavior? Uh, because you could put the greatest systems, the greatest tools or, or processes in place, but unless and until you address how leaders actually show up, how they engage, how they interact, how they make decisions, how they connect, that is ultimately what's impacting performance. So we started to almost take a step backwards and say, well, if we look at those measures as impacts of performance, well, when we take a step back, well, that what we're talking about is leadership culture. 
And that's what, what led us down this path of examining why is it that there has been stagnation in the impact of leadership engagement nationally and globally over the last two decades. There's no system. We think of workplace culture in too, of, too much of an abstract um, a manner. What if we look at it through an operational lens? What if we provided a framework or a system that says methodically you can actually navigate workplace culture or leadership culture? You don't. It, it doesn't have to be this intangible, mushy thing that people thinks are nice to have. Because ultimately, culture is happening in the business. Rather, you choose to manage it or allow it to evolve organically, nonetheless, it's it's occurring. So how do we get our hands around that? And that's really is what led us down the path of developing the methodology and, and ultimately writing the book. What was the definition, what's your definition of corporate culture, which you described very early in the book? You know, for, for us, as, as I shared earlier, and you know, the term corporate culture, right, is, is something that was born probably a couple decades ago, and then it evolved from corporate culture to workplace culture, whatever you want to shape it as to be. The values we all share, the language we all use, the behaviors we all display, and the connections we make, that's what makes up any culture, including workplace culture. So how do you put some systems around values, language, behaviors, and connections, right? And and that that's really what what we mean when we say workplace culture or corporate culture. Um, who are the stakeholders on a uh, on corporate culture? And they are they all internal? The simple answer is no, right? And I say that in the context of an organization's culture impacts not only the internal stakeholders, but externally, right? How your customers experience employees or experience the business is, is indicative of the culture within, right? Even if you, like we say in the book, you can't fake culture, right? And ultimately, what exists in experience will always manifest itself, no matter how hard you try to smile in your customer's face. We've all had experiences as consumers where, where, we can get a sense on the type of dynamic within a workplace, the type of culture that exists by our own experiences. So the simple answer is no. Um, who owns that? Ultimately, we believe leaders set the tone, not employees coming in. Leaders set the pace and the tone for what culture they want uh, for in, in the organization. Um, you write about the five myths of company culture. Uh, please tell us what they are and which one is the one you think is the most overrated. Oh my goodness. So I, I list a few and and but I'll I'll speak to the ones that stand out the most for me that continue to resonate. The premise that I'll, that culture is something that is formed organically, I think is extremely overrated. And I, and frankly, I believe it's born out of individual struggle with connecting how to actually impact it in a tangible way. The idea that somehow we bring these people together and they mesh to, to form this dynamic that then results in the workplace culture. Well, in that context, as a business leader, one of the things we all strive for is measurability, predictability, anticip anticipation of some sort. So the premise that workplace culture is just organically formed, well, yeah, in the context that unique 
ideas around what they believe good looks like. Yeah, that comes together. But but an organization ultimately perpetuates that culture. And again, how they engage, how they interact, how they make decisions. So that's a significant myth um, that we try to disrupt in our book. I think another myth is uh, the premise that workplace culture is more like something that is about making people feel happy. I cringe at this premise that that work that workplace culture is about the feeling an employee has, and I must make them feel as happy for as long as I can. When in fact, it's more about their experience, both in good times and in bad times, through adversity and through success as a business. How, what's my experience, and how is that nurtured or fostered? And that leads me to the other side of the coin, which is my culture that I prescribe must be one starting with its value system that aids in my ability to fulfill my purpose, my vision, my mission, my strategy. It's not born out of what people want in their experience. It's born out of what do I believe is necessary for us to realize this purpose, vision, mission? And by the way, for those individuals I'm attracting to my organization, here's what that is and here are the values we stand by. And if that aligns with what you believe you can, can thrive in environmentally, then you're a right fit, right? So this notion that people externally are coming in and they're meant to shape our culture, again, is not one that we find to be viable. I think there's a couple of other that we mentioned in the book, but those I just frequently encounter. I would add one other thing. Culture is not an initiative. And what I mean by that is this is this 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 existence and dynamic and in, in how we all essentially drive decision making every day. If you treat it like an initiative, then that's all it's going to be. So this premise that donut drives and, and, and pool tables make up a better workplace culture than one that doesn't have it is also a myth, right? It's not about the, the short interval circumstantial experiences of, of moments of happiness you may create for an employee to, to that defines your culture. So I, I'm, I probably didn't go in any, unif- you know, wonderful order, Mark, but you get my point. No, no, no. I, I like it. Uh, and that's what people are looking for. Uh, I agree uh, with high pay doesn't translate into a more positive, successful culture. Yes, we, that's we, the other one. We oh, see that all the time, especially on Wall Street, even in Silicon Valley, when they think people are happy because they're paying them a lot. Why do you think leaders think pay equals satisfaction? And, and what should they focus on? When you think about compensation, I often challenge the leaders. What do you, why do you think you're paying employees? I'm paying them to perform. I, I I expect productivity. That's what I'm paying them for. I'm paying them for their skills. I said, no, you're not. You're paying them for their time. Now, they told you they've had a unique set of skills that they can provide to you that adds value for their time. It's you as a leader is responsible for, for realizing that and how you engage, how you interact, how you make decisions. You're paying them for their time, which is why your lowest performer who's having a terrible workplace experience will come to you and say they want to raise. Now, you're thinking, well, how could you want to raise? Your productivity isn't where it needs to be. The idea is it's the value that they apply to the time that they're spending. So what do we do? We keep throwing money by wage um, as the catalyst to to them being happy. No, no, no. Because over time, 
the value they place on their time compared to the negative cultural experience they're having warrants them to say, I want more and I want more and I want more instead of evaluating how do I improve the impact of the time they're spending and from their perspective, as well as my organizations and the needs we have. Otherwise, you're constantly, you're always going to be chasing the dollar. You're always going to be looking for to give another 25 cents, give another dollar, give another $5 to hang on instead of addressing what am I actually doing to impact the experience? Because some the people with the greatest workplace cultures are not faced with the challenge of constantly competing with wage, except for responding, of course, to to market conditions, but in terms of their experience, doesn't dictate, oh, I need more money to stay here, right? So I think that's not only a myth that we need to disrupt, but also a foundational challenge that organizations will continue to face, especially with wage compression. You put yourself out of business if you keep chasing the dollar for dollar instead of addressing the root cause of why that individual believes that the value for their time is not equitable. Yeah, and so true. And I found over the years that a lot of my people would stay with me because they felt appreciated and challenged. I think if you feel appreciated and challenged, uh, and we've all worked at places where they paid us well, but we didn't feel appreciated and challenged right. and feel comfortable. And no matter what they paid us, I, I once was CEO of a magazine company, and I prayed every day that the train would derail. I hated it that much. <laughs> And they were compensating me really well, but I really right. hated it. I lasted six months. That's right. That's right. At the end of the day, you know, we've there we've done many studies, we've 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 reviewed many studies that support, especially as the generational shift continues to incur, to occur. Over 55% of the working population, closer to 60 now, is of a millennial and younger generation. This premise that you hunker down, you make as much money as you can, and, and, and you have a, a career for 30 years with my uh, organization is no longer a catalyst to their decision to join your organization, let alone stay. People want to feel purpose-driven. They want to feel a sense of growth. Growth isn't always predicated by a title or even wage, right? To your point, it's how am I being challenged? How am I being stretched in a way that aligns with my personal goals and objectives? So you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, what is your guess on what the corporate culture is, if there is one, at the former Twitter? I mean, he's let go of 80% of the workforce. People have got to be super stressed out uh, by what's going on there. And no they've lost about 60% of their income. So what, what's your take on what you think the corporate culture must be like there and compared to might be what it was before uh, he took over, which I just read the other day, what it was a profitable five billion and growing company. And the irony of of individuals whose um, personal egos and belief systems and 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 factors and you know can literally take a business down. I've seen it happen far too often. I would venture to say, like Twitter and many organizations who has this new senior leadership, new ownership come in. They have a vision in mind on what they believe is required for success. People will quickly become demoralized, feel diminished, feel undervalued when one, their perception of what's required to advance the business isn't solicited. And two, when um, um, the standards by which they 
were able to achieve productivity or creativity or whatever is required for the business are now being disrupted, right? Rather, it's now I need you to go from hybrid back to to um, uh, fully um, on site. Rather, it's dynamics that have shifted, shifts and changes in leadership. It's like any change process, right? People will uh, go through shock, then denial, then anger. And then what happens? We call that the valley of despair, where now they're in this space of, of what do I do? And if I don't see that I that there's a there's a path forward that is in better alignment with my desires and needs, then I'm going to either retreat or or um, or or um, be very miserable, right? So I would imagine that there is a large number of people who decided to stay in the midst of the, the changes who are not very happy. There are going to be some who are accepting of it. That's coming out of that valley in the midst of change, but does that mean they're gonna continue on that trajectory? Only time will tell depending on the decisions that are made um, thus far. I have no doubt that there's a percent of that workforce who was probably, if I put my Six Sigma hat on, um, was uh, uh, could be categorized as potentially non-value added or aspects of their work were non-value added. Sorry for whoever worked there who felt, found themselves laid off. I'm not suggesting you were that individual, but I would imagine holistically there are um, there was some capacity because oftentimes, especially in tech, I know it having run a tech company that we just sold, that you have a lot of capacity there because of unpredictability and other things. But um, nonetheless, I, the fact that they were highly successful and profitable is indicative of a different vision and direction and whatever drove those people to be productive uh, they lost that whatever that 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 um, desire to contribute in a way that made the business profitable how do you get back to that so i would encourage elon elon first of all slow your roll much of the damage has already been done so how do we how do we understand your vision in a context that people can connect with first of all and then what's the bigger picture? Where are we headed? What are you trying to realize here? Let's get clear about that. So I don't have any ideological view one way or the other. Um, it doesn't change the fact that how Elon approached this became um, disruptive and um, I think had a negative impact. Will it be long-term? I don't know. I wonder if they're even gonna be around long-term. Uh, good point. Uh, uh, we have a question from the, uh, and by the way, people like him get um, overrated. Like if he has a few uh, blockbuster successes, it's not saying he's not smart, but then everybody, including himself, thinks he's invincible, that everything he does is going to turn out perfectly. You know, that's why you always hear, you know, especially successful entrepreneurs, if they start a new venture, people don't even question if the venture makes sense or their logic makes sense. They're just saying, well, he'll figure it out. Here's the cash. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, there's, we can go down a rabbit hole, right? There's so many drivers of, of influence. Uh, but I want to get, I want to get to the question because I think there's some correlation there. Um, what is uh, a question from the audience? What is causing so many people in management to miss the value of company culture? And why are they, uh, why are the answer to creating one that support the company vision and mission? So it's kind of a two-part question. The first part is, you know, people in management missing the value of company culture. 
I think that's rooted in partially what I said earlier in the context that this conversation, the word culture, which has been overused and sensationalized in many ways, um, is something that feels so intangible to organizations that in leaders that they, what do I do with that? Oh, that's the mushy stuff. I, I, I care about my bottom line. I care about my EBITDA. I care about my profitability, whatever it is. Um, and that's the other thing that that um, I'll get to when I can get to. And in the midst of uncertainty economically, in the midst of demand on the business, oftentimes culture um, or the factors that influence workplace culture, again, through the guys that, oh, it's the event stuff. Oh, it's how people are feeling in the in the given moment. It's that stuff. I think so. It's a fundamental flaw that runs very deep. And if that's what's reinforced by senior leaders, then managers are going to follow suit. Notice I am not using managers and leaders. Uh, um, um, uh, what word am I looking for, Mark? Um, um, interchangeably. Because someone who possesses a leadership mindset, true leaders, recognize that some way. I have to motivate, inspire, educate, influence outcomes in my business relative to my people, right? Managers look at systems, process, resource. So for them, they're like, that's that other stuff. So managers will focus on those things, whereas leaders, true leaders recognize, well, I got to do something with my people dynamic here. So that's where you will find some emphasis, which leads me to your other point. Well, then they start chasing Right. Well, what do I do? Well, when you deploy lagging, you know, circumstantial employee engagement surveys that don't necessarily even align with the workplace culture you're trying to drive, um, and then you try to react to those results, it, it it becomes a futile effort. That's why we have stagnation globally in the employment employee engagement rates. We celebrate when one percentage point shifts. Uh, the 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 harder more challenging part is how do I influence leadership behavior proactively so that the results of my employee engagement surveys are indicative of the actual experience of the person, not in a, in a moment in time, but a true lived, sustained experience. That's hard because now we're talking about behavior. Now we're talking about connections. Now we're talking about driving accountability, right? So to answer your second part, um, what are What's the answer to creating a, a, a culture that supports a vision and a mission? First of all, let's get really clear about what's the purpose? Why do I exist as an organization? Why do I show up every day? Once I'm clear about that, then what's my vision? Where does showing up every day gonna, where's that gonna lead me five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And then what's the mission to arrive at that destination. And now notice I said purpose, vision, and mission in sequential order. They're not some marketing exercise. We have to get out of it being a message we want to just um, assume the marketplace wants to hear, but have it truly grounded in what we believe is necessary. Now, once we do that, well, I need, I need an actual value system. How do you want everybody to show up every day? I'm not talking about the window dressing that most organizations align with and apply because they believe the marketplace wants to hear that they have integrity and they believe in diversity and equity and inclusion. If it's not experienced, it doesn't matter what you put on your website, right? So that value system has to be something that is necessary for you to realize your purpose, your vision and mission, regardless of what you think the marketplace wants to hear. 
it, there's there's crossover there, but be clear about what I'm saying. That value system needs to be actionable because guess what? Everything else I do as a leader relative to how I coach, how I guide, how I support is born out of that value system because that becomes a standard by which we all engage and interact. It's the expectations that we have for how we show up in the business every day. Now, I only, what I just talked about was pillar one of a seven pillar framework. And most organizations haven't surpassed pillar one. Most organizations I go into, they may have a value system. They may have core values I can blow the dust off of in their conference room. And most executive leaders or senior leaders or anyone can even recite them. And then oftentimes they're not tangible. So how do we expect that to manifest in the business in a way that actually, if you believe it's necessary to fulfill your purpose, your vision, or your mission, how, how do we expect it to manifest if they're not even actionable? We bleed, we bleed green. We get her done. I, what does that mean to the person on the front line performing? And am I being held accountable to what that, whatever that means, right? So um, I, the, the system is required. That's why we wrote the book. Uh, you wrote, no surprise by me, uh, positive corporate culture is driven by great leadership. What's the profile of a leader who is good at fostering this? profile of a leader recognizes that leadership is not just a practice or a title. It's a mindset. You, uh, uh, the profile that leader recognizes that the measure of their success is not born out of the metrics that they drive or the KPIs or key performance indicators that they drive. It's born out of their capacity to actually lead another human being to take action, desirable and or undesirable. It's their capacity to actually inform, educate, motivate, inspire, to drive results in the business. A leader recognizes that in mindset and in practice as an intentional about it. And oftentimes organizations never look at the measure of that leader's success. Notice I'm not saying managers. The most effective managers are also leaders. But the leader's expectation is not just a barometer on KPI drivers. It's the it's on their capacity to actually transfer skills and to actually grow an individual. Right. That's 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 a different kind of individual. And I think that profiles distinguishes the person who comes in who says, look, just get we, we have we have results we need to drive to versus the one that says, let me be intentional about how I engage how I interact from the first high I make in the, when I walk in the building to the first meeting that I have to reschedule. I'm conscious of what that does to the experience of the individuals involved. Now, the audience doesn't know this, but you and I are Philly guys. And um, one of the, I guess, sports is one of the best things to go and watch because sports is reality. Um, but you're seeing it play out every day. Right. Uh, I think that maybe we could agree that Andy Reid really knows how to build good corporate culture. <laughs> Agreed. And, and, and because even though he didn't win the Super Bowl here, he was a consistent winner here for 14 years. And now he's won two Super Bowls in Kansas City. Why do you think that is? You know, what, what does Andy Reid do that he builds uh, not – only a winning culture for him, but unlike Bill Belichick in New England, where his 
None of his assistants who became head coaches have ever had a winning record. Or Andy Reid's uh, coaches have even won Super Bowls. Very, very true and very fair. And I'm, I'm, I'm headed to Kansas City to watch that game. Oh, uh, um, on Monday. Um, so go Eagles. Um, I believe. Why do you think that is? I think Andy Reid has a capacity to connect on a personal level with each member of that team relative to what their drivers or motivation truly is. Not the broad context of winning, right? Creating a winning team and and understanding how one another impacts the win. That's one thing. And there are a lot of coaches who can do that. Andy Reid knows how to connect with the players and not just in, in passing by the locker room, how's your family? But in the context of development, if you ever watch Andy Reid, Andy Reid is not just the coach who's on the up and down the sideline fussing and yelling. He's the coach that I don't care what position they played, even if you have an offensive coach and a defensive coach or, or coordinators, Andy Reid as the head coach is inclined to whisper something in their ear. Celebrate an accomplishment. Criticize a poor performance on the play in real time. Experiential learning is the catalyst to not only greater growth in, in, as a team member, but also in, in, in how an individual uh, is able to, to uh, feel a sense of recognition, belonging, acceptance, development, growth. So I think it's his approach in trying to be intentional about the individual. Now, look, as C-suite executives, we don't want, I'm not professing we need to know the names of everyone. We need, we need to rec- empower our frontline leaders to bridge disconnects in understanding what's, re- what's required to actually motivate someone. I use an example where, you know, I had, I had, a, I was working with um, uh, one of the largest franchisees of Taco Bell uh, in the country. And um, one example I spoke to, just a general manager who was struggling with um, um, creating a positive um, restaurant culture. Um, you know, it's quick serve, it's tacos, right? I, you know, it's a, it was a revolving door. And one of the things we talked about was this idea of leadership in the context of motivation. And I said, listen, the kid who's 16 or, or 17 coming in does not have this necessarily the same motivator as the individual who's um, um, 62 and retired. Understanding those drivers and connecting. So if that means if you want someone, if you need, you're running overtime and you need some people to volunteer for overtime and you remember that the 16 year old is trying to save up for their first car, I may put a little thermometer on the, on the, on the wall um, and, and track uh, how many hours a person's working that we know uh, estimate wise may get them to the savings of their car and motivate them to want to pick up as many hours as they can to get to their car. That's not going to be the same motivator as the woman who just retired and wants to just feel purpose driven because she's tired of sitting at home. So understanding right. on a more intentional level what drives people, and I think that's what Andy Reid and many effective leaders do, you start to multiply that, not just by the one individual, but in his expectation on how his other coaches lead, 
then over time, you start to have this very healthy dynamic in, in leadership. And I think that's the standout for Andy Reid specifically. I mean, aside from Terrell Owens, I never heard of uh, anybody ever complaining about playing for him. Guys work really hard for him. Guys want to come and coach for him. Uh, everything. I yeah, think yeah, him yeah. as much better coach than Bill Belichick, who even though he's won more Super Bowls, hasn't won with the variety of players that Andy Reid has. Right. And there's and there's different people are going to apply different leadership styles accordingly. I, I will say that um, it's interesting to me. People believe that um, somehow respect is and, and respect um, is um, an expectation. I think coaches despite their records, being intentional about establishing trust as a foundation, that will beget respect. We have it twisted. We think because of our titles, our positions, or what have you, we should be respected. When in fact, I don't care who you are, trust is a prerequisite to respect. The coaches who come in and respect the player for their contributions, what they know, what they don't know, their experiences, past and future, that makes part of that 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 ability to, or capacity to build that dynamic where they'll run through a brick wall over time for you, right? Loyalty's last. Trust, respect over time will beget loyalty, right? And that's what we see in these long tenured coaches who know how to engage these multi million dollar. Do you remember the guy who took over after Andy Reid? I forget his name. Oh. Uh... Um, the guy from UCLA. Yes. And he just he tried to apply like his college methodologies and and, um, you know, he he didn't respect that he was engaging with. Adult millionaires. Who believe they've established some credibility around who they were as players in an identity. And how do I help bring them to an understanding of my vision for the future of the team? And you heard a lot of rumbling and frustrations and, 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 and people didn't really mesh well in alignment with his vision for where he wanted to take the organization. So he felt that that foundational, let me build trust in, in our dynamic together as, as, as a leader, regardless of my capacity to actually make decisions. Yeah, that was Chip Kelly. Uh, Chip Kelly, thank UCLA you. Now. Um, here's another question uh, from the audience. That sounds like you're referring to the concept of alignment. Can you expand on alignment of employee purpose, uh, purpose and purpose and vision with that of the company? So I think to your point around alignment, There's agreement, there's alignment, and there's consensus. Alignment contextually says that as an organization, I have a vision or I have a purpose for existence as an organization. I have a vision for where I think that purpose is going to lead us. And we have some missions and, 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 and you're going to be a part of that mission team. These are the values that are important to us and how we treat one another, how we engage and interact and make decisions. Um, as we're engaged, as we're on our mission, do, can you accept that's how we engage, interact, and make decisions? There's no wavering from that. And can you accept this mission that I've set forth? And I will do all that I can as a leader over the course of that mission to motivate you, to inspire you, 
to do what's necessary to get you to the end of the mission. Because if you get to the successful end of a mission, we're going to be that much closer to our vision and we're going to be fulfilling our purpose in the process. That's the commitment we make. I don't need you to agree. I need you to align, meaning I need you to get in line. I mean, I need you to align with the premise that I'm going to do what's necessary to keep you there as long as you are committed to doing the same. I don't need you to say, well, my core value is this. No, these are our core values and how we operate. And here's what they mean. And here's what it means to show up that way. So now at the very granular level of the example I gave relative to Taco Bell is to simply say on the day-to-day basis, how do you connect a larger core value practically to the individual? So for example, one of your core values may be commitment. Well, commitment may mean many things, but to the organization, it means remaining true to um, uh, um, uh, what you want to, what you set out to accomplish. It means doing all that you can to achieve that. Let's say that that was your definition for commitment as a core value. But how do you practice that? Well, that 16-year-old kid encouraging that individual to remain committed to that goal, not to how many tacos you sold today, not to us hitting our store goal of $10,000 in, in, in top line revenue. For the 16 year old, how do I and reinforce the premise of commitment through what's important to that individual? Because eventually I'll get them to buying into why taco sales are important. But let me let me start with something as tangible as that. Some people understand the big picture of taco sales mean I have hours, which mean I get paid. Some people aren't motivated by that. So the idea is for the individuals that's required. Remember, I made a commitment to keep you on this mission. Then, then for that 16-year-old, I may reinforce the premise of commitment by, all right, now, now you said you wanted to get this car by November. I got 10 extra hours on the books for you to help you get there. Are you committed to that? I'm going to be, that kid is going to be greater than 50% more inclined to take on the hours than, than look, we got to sell more tacos because ours we, we're down in store sales by 25%. You think that 16-year-old even remotely can connect with and resonate yeah, of course with not. that? Right? So. That's the idea. Um, General Electric was once hailed as the preeminent developer of leaders in a company that once you stay there, you stay for life. (laughs) The U.S. was once the destination for any immigrant that sought a better life. But although the U.S. and and although U.S. citizenship is still coveted, other countries like Canada and Australia are more so. First, what did you think happened with GE's culture? And what is happening to the U.S. culture that's fracturing and how can it be um, repaired? I think the premise of GE's culture challenges and successes has to do with an organization's capacity to evolve with time. Oftentimes, what's led to our success, even in its relevancy today compared to historically, doesn't suggest that we must not look at um, secondary or tertiary factors that influence our business and how those factors are evolving. Work, not only technology, which most organiz- some organizations tend to want to put some focus in, especially in manufacturing, they're antiquated from a tech standpoint. They're also antiquated historically in their belief systems surrounding work workforce and how to manage that workforce. As I mentioned earlier, kind of anecdotally, this premise of 
long tenure. My value is in the fact that you have this capacity, you know, your ability to have these long term jobs. Well, that's not a motivator for individuals uh, in their in their desire to work for you. But that that means that company has to, to be invested in understanding the evolving motivators. How does technology play into that? How does um, transformative work environments play into that? GE was highly antiquated and I think um, didn't align with the changing times. I think what we find is that is also the case, especially in light and heavy industrial markets, you know, or, or industries. They just they 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 tend to be antiquated as in with respect to what's required to drive um, a, a more productive. Uh, workplace culture, and I think there are or there are other countries who have put greater emphasis around the human experience. Thus, um, they're seeing the benefits or payoffs of that. Um, and and to the extent that that leaders embrace the the studies and and the the research that supports the premise of greater balance and 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 the work they do versus on their capacity, both both in physical health, mental health, uh, all those things become factors that are going to continue to influence um, organizations' ability to adapt. Um, you know, and and adaptation isn't just through the lens of technology; it's through the lens of human interest and and how that influences their business. And now, and unless everyone goes automation. And and says, well, I just won't need more as many people, right? We're, as long as you have people in your business, you have to understand that with the societal lens, the socioeconomic lens, all the factors that influence your business, your people are changing um, who work for you and and, and your, just as your consumers are changing. Um, what's your, what is culture performance management? Culture performance management is the methodology that shapes how a company defines, implements, measures, and ultimately improves their workplace culture. We, we use the acronym CPM as it relates to culture performance management. It's a seven pillar methodology that, that connects the dots for organizations in terms of what's required. Like the company, uh, the gentleman asked earlier, you know, well, how, what, should, what does a company do to start to, you know, more um, take a more operationalized approach to their culture? Pillar one, value system. We talked about that in depth. depth. Pillar two, definition behind those values in a practical way. Standards and expectations for how you want people to lead. Pillar three, connect. It's one thing to have a value system. It's one thing to even define your expectations around it. It's another thing to actually connect it to the business, to their roles. What's your what's you what's the cultural experience pathway in your business from the time you walk in to the time you leave, from the time an employee's hired to the time that they exit, right? So connecting it so that people can be conscious of where am I actually impacting the culture? Oh man, I didn't realize every time I walk in the building, I never greet anybody. I go straight to my office. Well, there's that's one connection point. Any point of engagement, interaction, and decision-making is a connection point. Do you know where your connection points in your business that makes up that culture? That's pillar three. Pillar four, learn. You could have all the values, behavioral standards, and expectations. You could have even mapped your engagement points along the way in your business day-to-day. 
but a person's capacity to actually embody those values, well, you have to evaluate that and give them some room to learn what those skills and competencies are. That's pillar four. Practice, right? We use sports analogies a lot to your point earlier, uh, Mark. We like sports. Uh, my partner and I like sports. We, the best way to, to teach a person a behavior or to change a behavior is through experiential learning, a more active uh, learning environment. Now, I'm not talking about classroom training. We, ad- we apply a lot of learning retention theory. I'm talking about on the front line. I got to give people time to practice it. I got to pull you aside after that, that operations meeting that you saw and celebrate when I saw you embodying a certain um, value or behavior. I need to let you know when you're not and you need time to practice. So you, I can give you some feedback and you refine it at your next connection, just like a coach pulling someone on the side during the game, then allowing them a chance to go back out in the field and correct their, 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 their practice. So that's pillar uh, four. Um, After you practice, I need measurement. I need an opportunity. I need self-reflection. I need time for someone to give me their observation. So I have a a capacity to uh, uh, self-correct. Even after I self uh, get feedback, I need to refine and continue to refine. I think I miscounted my my pillars. That's Mm -hmm. pillar seven. So value system, define it, connect it, learn it, practice it, measure it, refine it. And that that's that system perpetually that'll continue to drive behavioral change, right? And over time, over time, proactively. You you write that leaders have to look at culture as a construct before they can implement a system to manage it. What what do you mean by that? The um, if we that goes back to my dialogue around the fact that we keep treating workplace culture like an event or an initiative versus a pillar to our strategic success. Comp- payroll and compensation is a strategic construct within the business that ensures that our employees are compensated, that we're following fair employment practice and and the laws associated with that. And we're honoring our employment agreements, what have you. We don't treat workplace culture that way or leadership culture that way. Um, There are many other systems and processes in our business that we treat as a construct or, um, or, or foundational to how we function. Do we treat culture that way? Now, it's, we like to say it's important to us, but do we actually engage it that way? So that means it's a part of my strategic plan. And I'm driving accountability around it. That means my highest sales guy or girl or, or they. If, if, if the embodiment of the core values that impact how that individual engage, interacts, and make decisions that ultimately impacts the experience of everyone internally and externally. If that doesn't align with what our expectations are, I don't care if you're bringing in the highest volume of revenue. I'm standing behind it, right? That's how important this construct is, right? And 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 that's where I, you know, many organizations um, don't truly have integrity behind this premise that it's that important to them. Um. What is considered a deal, a trust breaker to employees, and how does the leader and or company 
gain back the trust of its employees and maybe outside customers and even vendors are affected by us. And also, um, can you cite any examples? Uh, more examples than I can remember, um, both you know through my own professional journey, but also with my clients. I would say in basic context, a trust breaker versus builder is one who establishes commitments or expectations with another and vice versa and either upholds those expectations or fails to in a manner that does not beget honesty, transparency behind whatever the factors are influencing their ability to fulfill that obligation or not fulfill that obligation. In other words, if I make a commitment and I don't fulfill that commitment and I didn't proactively tell my client, my employee that of my capacity to not or to not fulfill it and the factors that influence that and what I was going to do to try to make up for that, then I'm already chipping away at trust. As simple as I told you I have a one-on-one, I will have a bi-weekly one-on-one, Mark, because I care about your employee experience and I care about your development and I want to make sure we are protect that time. And I schedule my bi-weekly one-on-ones and I put it on my calendar and you're like, cool, you're waiting outside Dr. Vaughn's office. And 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 I'm like, ah, oh, Mark, man, my bad, man. I, I I can't make it this time. And then the next time I'm like, ah, you know, I got to cut our meeting short, just this 30 minutes this time. And then the next time I miss it again, all those become subtle chips away. It's not always the big stuff. You told me I was going to get a promotion in six months, right? Sometimes it's the subtleties in our, our breakdown in fulfillment of commitment that's connected to communication, Right. I, a lot of times it's our trust between one another and me trusting that you can accept that I failed my time management or I got overwhelmed or whatever it was that led me to that. So I would say that that's where I see a lot of breakdowns on the leadership level from a trust standpoint. And, 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 and a lot of it requires a level of vulnerability and transparency. As leaders, we're afraid to say, I made, I made a mistake, I messed up, or I, I have priorities that are greater in this moment, not to diminish what's important to you, but to recognize that here's my bigger picture and then the scope of what I have going on. But that's a different kind of conversation and dynamic you have with your with your people. But again, the subtleties and breakdown in trust I see oftentimes. I don't understand why why we've broken down in trust in our organization. I have an open door policy. What? What does your open door policy mean if we haven't created established psychological safety for individuals to walk through that door? Are you even psychologically safe in your own role to be able to show up authentically in that way? Right. That so a lot of times I'm I'm navigating that when we talk about this trust dynamic in the workplace. It starts with very foundational things. Well, that leads into this question. You started to answer it. How often and when should leaders discuss the business's culture and sounding authentic and sincere? Because a lot of people say that and yes. they sound real. Yes, right. It, it, we spend so much time marketizing our culture and putting it on on um, you know um, cup holders that then when people hear it, they roll their eyes. Guess what? Culture is and is experience. 
if you are truly embodying the culture, it will be an individual's experience, which means when you speak to it, if anything, you're getting validation because they experience it. People roll their eyes is because the CEO is talking about we believe in innovation. Yet, you know, we have the most antiquated, you know, systems known to man in our business. Right. People roll their eyes because there's disingenuous connection, um, you know, between what you say is important and what I actually experience. So let's start with actually nurturing that experience. But look, every organization has to start somewhere. So let's say an organization is just kicking off. I, I always kick off an initiative for organizations who, frankly, never really put emphasis around their core values. Transparency from the start becomes key. That means the senior most leaders have to acknowledge the work they're doing as part of that process. Team, in the context of nurturing the culture we believe is important to the business, I failed you. And I have work to do over the next series of months to ensure that I am driving accountability and ownership and accountability around this culture I'm trying to drive. Let me start there, team. Now, with that being said, we're trying to reinforce and create this language around the culture. Remember, the values we share, the language we use. Here are our core values. Here's some language. You're going to hear us talking about it a lot more. You're going to hear us referencing it. You're going to hear us um, giving examples of it. Please don't understand that that's our objective to create a common language that our organization shares. Notice, Mark, the premise is I'm being upfront and, trans and transparent about my intention and how I'm moving. And then over time, people experience it. It's called social learning theory, right? Over time, when they experience it enough, they start to adapt it and understand it as a standard. Oh, that's how we move in here, where you won't have to just keep talking about our core value today is inclusion. It'll, you'll no longer have to speak to it in that context because it becomes a part of the language we use, the behaviors we display, the connections we make. So the, the most progressive cultured organizations are ones who don't actually have to reference much of their culture. But if you stop them and you stop a random employee and say, what do you think one of your core values? They can rattle them because they built some common language around them. So I would say that's a, a good place to start. Uh, a Gallup poll said that only 32% of employees are actually engaged. Yep. Uh, why is that? And what can employers do? I mean, I have to tell you, I'm working in the university. I don't know a single employee that isn't engaged. And maybe that's because of the environment I'm in. But apparently, uh, these studies, and we've seen them over and over again, uh, show really horrible results. Yes. So here's the thing. Those results are born out of employee engagement surveys where an, an institution will ask the, the body of, of, of um, staff their perception of how they've been engaged, right? So, but the challenge is the value of that engagement or lack thereof is measured on a variable scale by individuals that then are normalized into one number. And, and we end up very, you know, around this 30 something percent the last 20, 25 years is because we take those results where they say, I don't feel engaged. I don't feel empowered. My leader doesn't talk to me all, whatever the challenges are. And then we try to react, but we're never actually changing leader behavior. 
All we do is say, well, we got a 32%, guys. Let's try to move it to 35%. And they uh-huh. said they're not being, you're not, they don't feel engaged. Well, what does engage actually mean? Because I don't have a system that tells me how to effectively engage. And I don't have the capacity to learn, practice, and refine that in a way that makes sure the next time they're surveyed, they can speak to an experience that that justifies it as true engagement. We, we're missing the foundation to what's required. We got to get back to root cause, not react to symptoms based on a generalization or synthesis of survey results. We have to get at root cause, which is behavioral. Oftentimes, the surveys in and of themselves aren't even asking the right questions because the questions don't necessarily connect with the culture the organization is even trying to establish. Right. So we have some significant disconnects in the engagement results. That's why they're stagnant is because organizations haven't gotten to root because that's harder. I named seven pillars that that require leaders to hold other leaders accountable. And how many organizations we can raise our hand to say from the C-suite on down, peer to peer accountability, subordinate accountability often does not connect to behavioral change. It connects to operational performance. And we got to get back to, let's look at behavioral change. Those employee engagement routes will shift, will shift when we get to root cause. I think that's the fundamental disconnect. I have to say um, from running, I've done 25 startups and I think it's all how you communicate to your people and how you show them value. Because I would meet with the maintenance staff and I would tell them why their jobs were important and show it to them. And I would ask them for advice on aspects of business that I thought that they, and my turnover was zero and the people were incredibly happy. And then we uh, instituted a bonus based on performance. And so being, I think um, being present, visible, and talking to people at any level in the company um, in a sincere way makes an enormous difference. It counts way more than money ever will. It, it, absolutely. What you're talking about, Mark, is intentionality. You're leading with intentionality. You understand the importance of leadership. What you're speaking to is a leadership mindset. Of course, you have the burden of what's required to manage the business, but you're saying as a leader, I recognize my role. I'll, I, I ask, I'll, I'll go into a business. Hey, um, uh, what's your role? Just tell me your role in the organization and, and we'll go around. I'm getting to know everybody. Everybody, it never fails. Um, I'm the chief operations officer. I'm the chief financial officer. I'm the vice president of people and culture. I'm the, and I'll let them all blurt out their, their titles. And then I go back around. What's your role? Because you just gave me your title. What's your role? And as we start to unpack that, people realize quickly that we got to get our mindset back to where it needs to be. Because to do what you said, Mark, that's a mindset that you have walking in that building. That's not just a let me anecdotally pretend like I care about the maintenance guy today. Like that's not going to work. That will never pass. Um, Here's my last question for you. Uh, And it's been a super fast hour. And I could sit there and listen to you talk about this all day because I'm fascinated by this subject. Um, Last question, will corporate culture be touched by AI? And if so, how? Uh, I've been getting this 
question more often recently. Um, when I hear the word touched, I think of it in the context of influenced. Will it be influenced by AI? Yes. Yes. Um, yes, just like any other innovation that has impacted organizations since corporate culture was even a point of conversation. When when computers were introduced into the workplace as a standard work tool, when we went from DOS to to, to PC, like or, or Windows systems, like yes, right. Um, AI becomes another point of change that you have, and 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 in potential innovation that you have to evaluate against purpose, vision mission and values. Now, as long as I have human beings in my organization, I don't care how much AI I integrate into how we operate, how we as human beings, like you said earlier, Mark, at the foundation of that culture is communication. Because remember what I said around the definition of culture, values we share, language we use, behaviors we display, connections we make, share, use, display, making anything requires communication. So as long as we have that in the business, I don't care if if y'all are talking to AI right now. It's not even Dante here. It, it, it will matter and will influence culture. It comes down to what's important to that organization. And then you tie in, well, what's the application of AI to our fulfillment of this purpose? How does it relate to you, right? It doesn't change. It doesn't matter what innovation you put in your business. So um, that's my that's my uh, Cliff Notes answer. Dante, from one Philly guy to another, and we're living not in Philly anymore. Right. <laughs> it was great talking to you. And hopefully one day we'll meet in Philly for a good steak sandwich. That will be awesome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for everyone who joined in. I really appreciated the time. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. And uh, next week I have a former um, mafia soldier, uh, Lou Ferrante, is going to be our guest talking about mafia leadership and how you can use that to be successful. And he's um, had a couple best-selling books, and he's also hosted um, shows on USA and other networks on the inner workings of gangs and so forth. So I look forward to seeing you all next Friday night. Everybody have a good rest of your weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.